We are looking at the book of Hebrews in here again this morning, and today we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, and these chapters talk about blood and guts and faith. Seriously, I'm not making this stuff up, okay? So let's jump right in, starting with blood. I want to read out of Hebrews chapter 9 for us, then I'll explain this. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all of the people, including the Ten Commandments, he took the blood of calves, of cows, together with water, scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Aren't you glad you don't go to that church? Okay? So that's what was happening there. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant, a new agreement, a contract, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle, the building, or the tent at the time, and everything used in its ceremony. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Whoa! If you read this, your first thought is usually, that's a lot of blood on a lot of stuff. And I'm not really that great with blood. I can't watch when I even donate blood. I just have to turn my head. I was watching a movie a couple of years ago. I only made it through about 15 minutes of it because of all the blood, all the gore in it, okay? But it wasn't like a slasher movie. I don't watch those things. It was called Sunshine Cleaners. Many of you have probably seen it, okay? There's this scene. These two girls own a business. Not to totally gross you out, but there's a, there's a point to all this. They own a business, and they clean up after crime scenes, including murder scenes. And they were cleaning up after this one murder that took place on a person's twin-sized bed. And they just had to throw the mattress out because it was covered with just blood and ick, okay? So they're walking out on the street. One girl's carrying it behind her, and she's walking out, and she's the head person. And then her sister, her younger sister, is walking behind her carrying the mattress. Well, for some reason, the girl in the front, she got distracted, and she just stopped. Well, if you've ever moved anybody, you know what happens when you're the person in the back and this happens. The person in the back, she didn't know her sister was stopping. And so she ran into the mattress that suddenly stopped, tripped, stumbled, and face-planted onto all the goo on that mattress. At that point, movie was over for me. I'm done, okay? I don't even know what happened in the rest of the movie because I'm just not that okay with blood and goo. I wanted to crawl out of my own skin. That's how many people feel when they read parts of the Bible, especially the Old Testament parts of the Bible. There's lots of blood in the story, specifically when it talks about the blood of animal sacrifices being offered um, as gifts to God in the temple. Okay, and that's what the verses we just read were referencing. And when you read those stories, if you're like me, your first thought is, what the heck was wrong with these people? They're so barbaric. What were they thinking? They're like a few hairs short of a baboon, as Lou C.K. would say. Okay, it's like, what are, what are they doing? Well, this will be review for some of you, but new for many of you. We have to understand something. When you read the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, you're reading about a people that are nothing like you. You can't think, oh, they were just like us. No, they weren't, okay? They lived thousands of years ago in a different culture with a different view of God, or specifically back then, the gods. They believed in territorial deities, deities that they believed to control all the forces of nature, okay? So they wanted to keep these deities, these gods with a small g, happy and appeased and on their side. So that if the gods got angry with them, they were afraid the gods would send down lightning and thunder and hail and drought and earthquakes and kill all their crops and critters and ultimately them. 
So they thought to themselves, what can we do that will show the gods our devotion to them? What can we give the gods that will obviously show them how serious we are about our relationship with them? And they thought about it, and then bingo, it came to them. I know, we'll give them something alive, because what's more important than life? So we'll offer to them a living sacrifice, which at first was animals, and later on actually became for some of them children. They would offer child sacrifices. Surely this will show the gods how important they are to us. Surely this will earn their favor. Well, the first time bloody animal sacrifices are mentioned in the Bible that we read is the book of Genesis. And Cain and Abel, two of the first people on the planet, were offering sacrifices to God, and one of them offered a bloody animal sacrifice. God didn't tell them to do this. This was mankind's ideas. They were just following the common practices at the time. But it's made people in modern times for hundreds of years ask this question. Why did God, the God of the Bible, go along with these barbaric practices? And you think that when you read the Bible, if you're honest with yourself. Well, the most common answer given, the most, the, the most common answer most of us have been given is this. Because God is just so holy, he's so just, that he absolutely had to vent his wrath against evil. Evil or sin or whatever you want to call it is such a vile substance that something had to be punished for it. Something's got to bleed. Something's got to die. Better animals than us. So God vents his wrath and rage on these animals and we are spared. That's the answer most of us are given. That whole theory is called penal substitution, which sounds like a horrible surgical procedure, but it's not. What it means is, sorry, okay, um, that's how my mind works, okay? But what it really means is that something suffered the penalty or someone suffered the penalty for you. Many people believe that's why Jesus had to die on the cross. They believe that the animal sacrifice thing wasn't working well enough, so God had to vent his wrath, his rage on evil, onto Jesus. So Jesus really suffered to save us from God, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So let me tell you about the problem with this kind of thinking. First of all, if you believe God absolutely had to vent his wrath on something, then this verse that I'm going to put on the screen will never make sense to you. This is out of, oh, that's a good graphic that Stephanie made for me, all the blood on the first one. That's cool. Okay. I probably only think that. This is out of James chapter 2. Mercy triumphs. It wins out over judgment. If you believe that God has so much rage in him that he has to vent his wrath, he has to get it off his chest before he can forgive, then you believe that justice triumphs over mercy. You believe that God's forgiveness, his ability to forgive, has limits and requirements. God will forgive you, but if, only if, and that's a big word, if you meet the requirements, if something's punished, if something bleeds, if something dies. But this verse says just the opposite. No, no, no. Judgment doesn't triumph over mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God forgives with no ifs. He never stops. He never even hesitates forgiving us. Okay? The second problem with this kind of thinking is this. If you believe God has to vent his wrath before forgiving, then you believe that God uses violence. He uses rage and wrath to solve his problem. Somebody does something evil, and God uses violence to solve that problem. So basically, you believe that God has a hidden dark side. I was reading about a young lady that couldn't find any suitable guys to date, which seems to be a problem because my sister-in-law 
always regales us with stories of the bad dates she's been on. It's just a difficult thing for young women in our society, evidently, to find suitable guys to date. There's just a lot of dud guys out there. And I'm a guy, I get it, but some of you are just, not you guys, but there's a lot of dud people out there, okay? And so she was so desperate, she got on Match.com. She thought, surely the internet is filled with wonderful men. <laughs> okay? So, so she gets on Match.com, and she goes out with this guy, and he, he appears normal, he appears wonderful, and they're out in a dinner in a public restaurant, and he leans over to her, and, he, and she thinks, oh, he's not going to kiss me. He's going to share something of vulnerability with me or tell me how beautiful I am or something wonderful. He leans over and says the words that you're going to read on the screen to her. He says, I would like to taste your brain. I, I'm not kidding. You can't make this stuff up. The truth is always better than fiction, right? That was a deal breaker for her, okay? There was no second date with this dude because her first thought is, this guy looks great, but he obviously has a hidden dark side, all right? He might have been joking, but it didn't matter to her. Anybody even willing to say that has a hidden dark side. If you view God as having a hidden dark side, that he is a God with a secret rage problem, a rage that your behavior could trigger at any moment of any day of your life, you're not going to want to love and get to know this God and draw near to him and worship this God. Far from it. You're going to run and hide from this God. You're going to dread this God. You're going to want nothing to do with this God because a hidden rage problem is a deal breaker for you, if you're honest. And here's the scary part. People who believe God uses violence to solve his problems tend to copy that behavior. That's what happened especially around the 11th century in Europe. All the Christians thought, you know what? God uses violence to solve his problem. He's a God of wrath. We should do the same thing. And they started killing everybody that didn't believe the same things as them called the Crusades. Not our best moment in history as Christians, okay? But that's what you do. You take on the image of the God you worship. If you believe God to be a rageaholic miter and that's always angry at people, you'll tend to copy that behavior. But when we read through the book of Hebrews, this is why I love Hebrews so much, things change. The writer points out to us, hey, it's a much better idea to lean on the mercy of God as a way to relate to God than it is to lean on all these elaborate and bloody animal sacrifices as our way to relate to God. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad that humankind has moved on past animal sacrifices? Because if that wasn't the truth, when we moved into this building, I would have been required by religious laws to sprinkle everything with blood. The walls, the doors, the musical instruments, that couldn't have been good for their guitars, okay? And you... I would have had to sprinkle all of you and myself with blood. Ick. Now we can look back and go, okay, animal sacrifices were just a bad idea. A bad idea that people came up with in the name of God. Let's just add it to the list of bad ideas that people have come up with in the name of God. Things like the Crusades, which I mentioned. Things like denominations. I know, let's take all the Christians and draw a line in the sand and separate us all. That'll help us out, okay? Really? Really, we have to have different denominations? Or what about my ministry? That is so creepy. Who thought that was a good idea? Okay? Or tambourines. Way too many tambourines and worship bands. Have you ever been at a church that's got like eight tambourines going, rattle, 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 pop? Oh, make it stop. Okay? There's a lot of bad ideas in the name of God. But the question remains, why did God ever go along with the whole sacrificial system? 
personally, you can disagree with me, but personally I believe it's because God meets people where they're at. He meets people where they're at. And they were steeped in this tradition, so he went along with animal sacrifices to accommodate the culture. But it was never permanent. God eventually changed their minds on it. Look at Hosea 6.6. Look what this says. This is God talking. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God, a relationship with God, rather than burnt offerings. God doesn't need blood. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need bloody sacrifice. He doesn't want that. What he wants is loving and devoted lives. One great thing about the animal sacrifice system, though, is for these people, they realized that their sin was a big deal. They, they knew it was way too big of a deal to just dismiss their sin and not pay attention to it. They knew something had to be done about their sin. All too often, we dismiss our sins, don't we? And I'm guilty of this, too. We're so used to God's mercy and forgiveness that when we sin, we do something we know is wrong, that has somehow violated what God wants for our life. We just think, oh, God will forgive us. And so we kind of dismiss our sin. We sweep it under the carpet. Sin is way too vile to ever dismiss. Remember when you were in middle school, or maybe for high school for some of you, and the science teacher said, we're going to show you a little movie, or sometimes it was a lecture, on how hot dogs and sausage are made. <laughs> Remember that? Maybe it was just in the 80s. I don't know. But they showed us this movie on how sausage and hot dogs were made. And you watched it, and you, oh my gosh, this is horrible. That goes into a hot dog? That, they used those parts of a body to make a hot dog? After the movie, you swore off hot dogs and sausage for the rest of your life, right? You know, I am never going to put that vile tubular substance into my body again. If we could somehow see our sin, our evil, our disobedience, our rebellion with special spiritual goggles, we would do two things. First of all, we'd be mortified. We'd go, I did that? That substance was in me? Oh my goodness. And the second thing we'd do is we'd never stop thanking God for forgiving us, for cleansing us from that vile, sinful substance in our life. That's what we would do. But there's still this line in Hebrews chapter 9. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. I totally believe that. But it's not the shedding of animal blood. It's the shedding of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. He was the one sacrifice that ended all sacrifice. But I do not believe that Jesus died on the cross so God the Father could vent his rage and wrath on Jesus. No, I believe Jesus died on the cross because when he walked this earth, he was constantly speaking out against systems, be, they, be those systems of politics or religion, that were oppressing and damaging and hurting and controlling and enslaving people. Jesus constantly messed with the status quo, and the people in power didn't like that, so they killed him in order to silence him. Didn't work, but that's what they were trying to do. The cross was Jesus letting this giant wheel of violence and power and greed and oppression roll over him and crush the life out of him, and then so it would roll back in the other direction. Jesus changed the momentum of things on the planet. He showed us a better way to live. The cross was Jesus saying to us, please don't resort to power and violence and greed in your life. The things, the very things that put me on this cross. I don't want you to respond with evil, with more evil. No, I want you to overcome evil by doing good. I don't want you to hate 
I want you to love. I don't want you to torture. I want you to heal. I don't want you to seek revenge. I want you to forgive just like I'm forgiving the people that hung me on this cross right now. He was showing us a better way to live. The cross was this explosion of love and forgiveness. It was Jesus taking something ugly, a cross, an implement of torture, and making something beautiful out of it, a beautiful display of love. I was talking to a tattoo artist this week. She does the most amazing thing, and more on her later. I can't mention her name quite yet, but um, we're going to probably go public with this. She takes women that have been branded with horrible, scarring tattoos on their body that are in the sex trade industry, and she takes those and she uses them as the foundation to do beautiful artwork on their body when they get rescued out of that. She takes something ugly and makes something beautiful out of it. She's amazing. I just love her to pieces, okay? She just did, I got another tattoo. I'm, I have a problem, okay? So, but anyway, um, so she did that. And I thought, oh, that's what the cross is. It's Jesus taking something ugly and using it as the foundation to do something beautiful. Okay, that's enough of the blood. Let's move on to the guts, okay? This is out of Hebrews chapter 10. I'm just going to read four verses for you. Remember the early days, the early days of your faith. You'd received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. They were having a hard time. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Would we do that? Would we let the government take our property and go, yay, you took my house, okay? Probably not. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It'll be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Oh, so great, okay? So... Our faith journey with Jesus can be so difficult at times. It's not all bliss and blessings like you hear on TV. Sometimes it's just doubt and silence and confusion and just gutting out your faith, just making your way through your day, choosing to believe that God is close to you, even though it feels just the opposite. It feels like He's miles away from you. And I want to tell you, it's okay when your faith journey is difficult. That's not the time to worry. The time to worry is when your life has absolutely no difficulty at all because that means you are not trying anything that stretches you, anything that scares you, anything that challenges you. You're settling for the good instead of attempting the great. There are a lot of good things that we all have to do all the time. It's good to go to work. It's good to mow the lawn. It's good to cook dinner. It's good to feed the pets. It's good to ground your kids, okay? All those things, you know, whatever you have to do, those things you just have to do as part of life, those are all good. But doing the great is where the action is. Doing the great, you know when you're doing something great, because when you're doing something great, your soul ignites. And instead of thinking, oh, I have to do this, you think, oh, I can't believe I get to do this. So many people look at their lives, so many people that I talk to as a pastor, and they think, this is it? This is all my, my life consists of. I get to go to work for 40 or 50 hours a week and come home and watch Netflix and hang out with my family for a little bit. That's it. And they get depressed because they feel like they've settled. That's because they have. They have settled, okay? They've allowed the good to crowd out or crush the great. 
And sadly, churches have helped people to crush the great in their life. And they've done it by this. Many churches try to convince people that they are scum-sucking, bottom-dwelling, sin-saturated sea cows. These vile creatures that God can barely stomach being around. And if you believe that about yourself, that the results are disastrous. Because if you believe that, you'll naturally think, I'm such a vile creature, I've got nothing good to offer my friends, my family, my neighborhood, my community, the world at large. I've got nothing good to offer. And if you believe that, you won't. And the greatness in you gets crushed in that very moment. Please think differently about yourself. Look at this verse. This is great. This is out of Psalm chapter 8, which is quoted by the writer of Hebrews. You have made them, people like us, a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned them with glory and honor. That word glory is kavod. It means weight or importance or significance. What this verse is saying is you are crowned, you are covered, you are immersed in greatness. You are crammed full of God and life and dreams and ambitions. We've all got something to offer because we've got greatness on us and in us. It's who we are. And the world needs our greatness. It needs us to live out our dreams and ambitions. Some of you right now, deep down in your heart, you want to adopt or foster a kid. Great. That's great. Do it. Some of you want to be an advocate for new political or educational systems. Great. Do it. Don't wait for the permission of the church or anybody. Just do it. We'll follow you later. Some of you want to comfort the lonely. Some of you want to serve the needy. Some of you want to stand alongside the people in our community that are forgotten, that are on the fringes. Great. Do it. Do it. Some of you want to travel to experience different places and people. Do it. That's great. Some of you want to have a conversation with someone because you know for some reason they need to hear your voice. I did that this week. There's a person on my mind I thought, I, I've got to call him. Lived in the Midwest now. I don't see him very often. And I called him. I didn't know it, but he just lost his job. Literally just lost his job. He was destitute. He goes, I'm in this dark place. And I got to encourage him. And that explained why before the conversation, I was thinking to myself, oh, I can't believe I get to do this. I get to call my friend. I, I can't believe I get to do this. I was way more excited than I should be about just making a phone call. I don't even like talking on the phone. But I knew I was up to something great. I just didn't know how. Turns out I found out later. Oftentimes doing the great things are the simple things. That's okay. You want to do great things, though, because God has crammed you full of greatness. And some of you might be thinking, nice try, Pastor. But I've, I've taken that step. I've stepped out in risk and faith. And I've tried to do something I thought was great. And it was a disaster. And I got the scars to prove it. The physical ones or the emotional ones. I've got the scars to prove it. Yeah, that happens sometimes, okay? Sometimes our, our plans for greatness don't work out that well, but that's okay. Scars aren't all that bad. Look what this one author wrote in this novel. I, oh, this is brilliant. I just love this quote. Can we pop this up on the screen? Therefore, since... No, not that one. There you go. No, I don't want that one. I want the quote about the scar. You were on it. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. I ask you right here, please to agree with me that a scar is never ugly. That's what the scar makers, these people, want us to think. Okay? And then move on. But you and I, we must make an agreement to defy them, to defy the scar makers. We must see all our scars as beauty. Okay? And this will be our secret. 
Because take it from me, a scar does not form on the dying. A scar means I survive. I love that quote. I absolutely love the quote. It's brilliant. Because whenever we do something great for ourselves or for others, there will be pushback. There will be adversity. There will be roadblocks. You'll feel unsafe or insecure, insecure, or mostly you'll just feel overwhelmed by it all. But do that act of greatness anyway because you might get scars when it doesn't go good, but that's okay. Your scars will become your beauty marks because your scars mean you didn't let the difficulty stop you. You didn't let settling for goodness crowd out your attempt to do something great. But the question is, well, okay, that's fine, but how do we persevere when it doesn't go good, when we experience adversity and we get these scars and we get this trouble and difficulty? How do we keep gutting it out? How do we keep going in our faith? The answer is found a couple of chapters later in Hebrews chapter 12 when it says this, and I'll put this one up on the screen. That's the verse I was calling for. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance. Let us keep gutting it out, the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Have you ever noticed that people aren't good at noticing things? They lose focus. When we were, when we were moving um, into our office, we had a whole bunch of people here, and they were moving things up the stairs, and there was a wreck outside, so I ran outside, and some of you, others of you did too, and we were laughing about this because the girl that got in a wreck was so shook up. She was fine. I made sure she was fine. She was so shook up, she was asking everybody to be her witnesses. Did you see this? Did you see this? Well, a blind guy that came was literally walking up the road, and she grabs him and goes, did you see this? <laughs> okay. And he goes, do you have a driver's license? And she goes, yes. She, he goes, do you know what this white stick means? <laughs> I mean, of course he didn't see it, okay? You just asked a blind guy if he saw your wreck, okay? You're not focused enough. I was in Albertsons the other day just trying to get two items for dinner. Simple. Just two quick items, and I wanted to get out of there. Two times I had to jump out of the way of individuals, once a guy and once a girl, that were pushing their carts like this. Okay? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I'm not even exaggerating. They're pushing it, and they're coming at me, and I thought, oh, they'll see me, they'll see me. Oh, you're not going to see me. You're going to run me down and kill me in Albertsons. You're kidding me. You're not focused. If we want to be people who are able to gut out the tough times in our faith journey, then we have got to turn away from anything that distracts us and be riveted, absolutely riveted on Jesus. So we can say, oh yeah, Jesus, He is with me. Oh yeah, Jesus, He does love me. Oh yeah, Jesus can pick me up off the floor and put me back together again. We've got to focus our eyes on Jesus. Just like when you watch a good movie, you can be filled with joy and laughter when you watch, when you see, when you pay attention to Jesus. You'll be filled with perseverance. You'll be filled with the strength to get through the tough times when you're just gutting things out. So there's the blood and the guts and the faith of it all. That's enough for today. Let me pray for us. God, please help us to see You, Lord, not as a rageaholic God that requires blood and the venting of wrath in order to forgive, but help us to see you, God, as a God of mercy who went to the cross 
to show us how to live. Like Pete said earlier, help us to view you as a relentless God of love. And Lord, thank you, God, for your forgiveness, for a clean slate. Our sins are vile. They're horrible. They're awful. We admit that. But we thank you that your ability to forgive us and cleanse us triumphs over that, Lord. And Lord, remind us to fix our eyes on you. Fill us with the strength and the gumption to endure the rough patches, Lord. And fill us with the passion to attempt the great, even if that's as simple as making a phone call to someone who might be discouraged, Lord. Help us not to settle just for the good. The good's fine, Lord, but help us to have the faith and the courage and the gumption to attempt the great. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.